welcome to episode 101 of Literary Disco Q&A. After our long hiatus and then our much buzzed about, much tweeted about, much over analyzed episode 100, we wanted to reconnect with you, our listeners, and have a good old-fashioned Q&A episode. So we have gathered some questions from Twitter and Facebook, and we are ready to talk about everything but Girl Meets World. <laughs> well, oh, no, that's boy. not true. We will, we will answer Girl Meets World questions. I have a lot of answers to Girl Meets World, let me tell you. Uh, I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are essayist and radio personality Julia Pastel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Hey guys. Hello. Hey. Ryder, it's are you going? To, are you going to say anything highly controversial this episode that I, I, guess should, I should? You totally should. Well, only if it'll boost our, uh, you know, he, he, ratings. Here's what I don't get. Downloads. Here's what I don't get, Ryder. I talked about a book that literally um, is about the Israel-Palestine confrontation mm-hmm. told from the point <laughs> of view nothing. of an American Jew living in Palestine. I get nothing anti-Semitic via Twitter, no hate mail. You say that your job is over, and it's as though, like, the New York Times is like, Trump said what? What? Ryder Strong said what? <laughs> <laughs> It's a little bizarre. I didn't realize there was such an appetite for uh, a definitive answer whether the show had been canceled or not. I thought it was pretty well established in the the, the universe that the show was generally thought to be over. Hmm. Of course, nothing was official when I said that the show had ended, but at that point, I had already been asked to come back and act on, a, on an episode, which was the last episode of season three titled... Girl meets goodbye. Colin, so we've I assume, been canceled. and that 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 was all public knowledge. Um, so I thought when I said the show ended, and you know, left it at that, which I did. You know, I I wasn't saying anything official, but um, the show had ended as far as I was concerned in my contract and my time on it, and they hadn't decided to pick it up yet. So technically, I was correct, but. Um, yeah, and you know, honestly, I decided not to step up and say like go on Twitter and be like, we don't know because the writers did that. Um, right. And and the, I just didn't want to keep feeding the echo chamber. Just let Disney make their decision, which they did, um, which we all knew was coming. Um, but yeah. Well, I... Who knows? Maybe, maybe there's a future somewhere for Girl Meets World. I have nothing to do with that at this point, just for the record. Uh, I, would... I just heard the offices of Entertainment Weekly opening <laughs> and an article being written. Yeah. Strong of, says future for Girl Meets World. Netflix well, question right, mark. Right, exactly. That's Digital these headlines come out of nowhere. <laughs> these headlines, like they take, like uh, yeah, I couldn't believe how far some of these headlines went. And then you actually listen Fake to news. what they said, and you're like, ah, oh, it's not that big of a deal. But yes, of course, like you know, I would be happy to see Girl Meets World continue. It has been so much fun. It has been a great job. Um, the directing aspect of it, I really love, and I would love to come direct more of the show or another show like it. But, um, yeah, I have no involvement. I mean, I'm not out there actively pitching or fighting for it because it's not my show. I am merely a component of it. So I, I have nothing official to, to contribute. Well, I just, we haven't even talked about this yet, but I was so fucking delighted to have my name printed in Perez Hilton for being a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what it said? It said we are nerds? No, it just names me and Todd also. Uh, 
which is so unnecessary, at least in my case. I'm just like an absolute nobody. But it's it's hilarious. Like I never thought I never wanted to be famous and I never thought I would be in a website like that. So to be in it for a nerdy book podcast where we talked about social justice on the episode, I was I was thought it was absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Yeah. And we got mentioned in the New Yorker, like online a, a year ago yeah. when I did an interview for them. So Literary Disco's gotten some press, guys. We're, we're this is a scandal. This is a scandal um, that my name is attached to. I'm happy. <laughs> yeah. I think every week what we should do is just tease out a little bit of scandal from writers' point of views. Like, you know, just so you guys know, if you look at Cabin Fever 2, I do move mm. a little bit in Cabin Fever 2. You don't know. Mm. Yeah. I, I think there's a, a real opportunity for this to, to last forever. So the definitive statement is you were trying to torpedo the show. <laughs> Single-handedly, I wanted to kill Girl Meets World. As oh, contract labor, you were single-handedly attempting to torpedo the show. Well, it's nice that uh, folks came and listened to the show. We appreciate it. We hope you stick around for episodes uh, 101 through 200. Um, next week we'll probably break some uh, some big news about uh, Julia's involvement with the Improv Theater. Is she leaving? Is she staying? We don't find know. out in episode one hundred two. I'm staying. <laughs> that's that's not how you do it, Julia. That's not how you do it. Oh, sorry, God. Yeah. Uh, the gossip just isn't that hot about <laughs> various managing directors of Improv Theater. <laughs> So what are we doing today? Okay. Don't we have, don't we have some We stuff? are going to answer questions. All right. So this is a good one uh, to ease us in okay. and uh, accounts for our absence. So I thought this was a great question. Uh, this is from Jennifer. I'm so happy you're back. I was starting to get worried. Any books on which your opinions have dramatically changed? So mm. either from our show or in our lives you know after a long absence you return to a book or maybe even don't return to it um and feel completely differently i guess either from negative to positive positive to negative or otherwise hmm i've definitely had that experience i'm trying to remember i feel like i've actually talked about that on this show before where i like reread yeah. something and it was really disappointed <laughs> but i can't remember what it was specifically um you know, while we were on our hiatus from the show, I reread the novel Train Dreams by Dennis Johnson. Remember we mm. read that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. God, I loved it so much more, <laughs> even, even <laughs> more. So that isn't really a change of opinion. That just, it was like, oh, I realized that I'm going to be reading that book probably every couple of years. It's going to be one that I return to. Mm. Um, such a, it could, so, so it's a short, quick, easy read, but just beautiful. And I still kind of don't know what it's about. Which I love. I had a uh, I had a similar thing with um, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. Um, I went and saw the movie, and it was not good. And mm -hmm. to remind myself of why I had gone to see the movie, I reread about the first half of the book, and I was like, "Oh right, this is one of the best novels in the last twenty five years." Yeah. Um, did Did either of you see the movie? No, I was very. No, excited. did you see it at the high frame rate? No, I saw it just in a regular movie theater. But you know, he shot it at like three times the frame rate. It's like yeah. 100 and... It was, oh, it was still a little nauseating. It was still... Um, it, 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 I, the movie itself just didn't work for a variety of reasons, but the book really did. You know, uh, here, here's one thing that I've gone back to, and um, 
had my opinion changed on recently, which is um, uh, the short stories of um, Tobias Wolf. I hadn't read a ton of his old short stories. And when I was a younger man, read them, they didn't mean much to me. And then I read uh, a few of them over our break because I was going to teach one of them. And before I just sort of lumped him in in that sort of category of all the dirty realists of that era, of that era. Um, but I really came to appreciate him as a completely different kind of stylist than uh, than everybody else. So I, I, rereading Tobias Wolf um, made me appreciate him more recently. He's great. I've actually only read his yeah. short stories. I we've talked about this before because I know in Pharaoh's Army I have to read. I've never read This Boy's Life. I, I like the movie a lot. Um, this Boy's Life is quite good. Yeah. And in my mind, I think I was sort of influenced by This Boy's Life as thinking it was sort of of that time um, that all of his stories were like that. But his stories are not like that. Um, his stories are much more rugged, I guess you could yeah. say. Um, but I, I really, um, and you know, I, I hadn't read a lot of his work in about 20 years or so. So coming back to him was pretty cool. There's something else I read recently. Oh, um, Oh, what the hell is it called? Um, Antonia Nelson's short story, Stitches. Are you guys familiar with the short story? Mm-mm. It's, uh, I had, again, I, my opinion of the short story was um, sort of vaguely like, eh, it's not that interesting of a story. It's a short story about a woman who, a young woman who calls her mother because she has been raped. Um and the mother and the daughter had this long conversation about what happened and about that it's the teacher that did it to her. And then you find out that the mom had some weird um, experience with sex and with violence, but also that she had slept with her college professor. And it just it's this whole very strange world that um, so it's a comedy that rolls out over the course of. <laughs> it actually is a funny story. It's a it's a bizarrely funny story. Uh. And in my mind, it was sort of satire. But now reading it today, um, it it was, um, you know, it's it's pretty, um, pretty timely. So Stitches by Antonia Nelson is a story that I my my view of completely changed reading it again for the, for the second time in many years. Something that I've read many times and I'm always amazed by how much more I get out of it, which is more of an experience I think we have with movies because they're so short, um, is A Christmas Carol, the actual text. Um, It is so... A Christmas Carol is like perfect Dickens. It's obviously like super moral and positive in its way, but it's so dark in the It's a Wonderful Life sense that... It really is timeless, and the writing is just so creepy and amazing. So I've I've read or listened to that on tape many times. Like usually when I'm first getting into the Christmas mood, I'm like, yeah, let's read a Christmas Carol, and it's just it's super good. I'm trying to think. Have you guys ever been in a situation where you hated a book but then gave it a second chance? Like, are we cutting ourselves off from a good second read by never giving a book a second chance if you like absolutely despise it? Um. I don't know, like some of the books that I've really hated have just been bad commercial fiction where I just find some aspect of it distasteful, like some serial killer book where they're chopping up women and I'm just like, I'm not going to fucking read this shit, you know, this is mm-hmm. stupid and I find it distasteful. Um, or a crime novel where I figure I figure it out in the first 10 pages. Uh, here's yeah. an example of a yeah. book that um, I gave up and I listened to an audiobook and I hated it even more, um, was <laughs> The Girl on the Train. The yeah, I hated on that the book train too. Is horrible, and if you don't, 
Look, spoiler alert, it was the husband. If you... If, if you can't not figure what out... what spoiler alert means. If you it doesn't mean... You don't say spoiler alert and then immediately say the say spoiler. Right. But like, if you can't, if you can't <laughs> figure out that book... Like if you can't, if you can't figure out the crazy mystery of that book, then you've been you've been in a coma for thirty years. I, there's there's no there's no mystery. Of course, it was the husband. Ugh. The movie is pretty well made. It's pretty cheesy, but it's it's well made. It looks good. The acting's really good. Spoiler alert: We win World War Two. <laughs> I. <laughs> I honestly believe with that book that people it's this still fits in with the rereading question because and I have I've had so many of these experiences where, you know, we read Gone Girl. I really, really liked Gone Girl. I know some some people didn't, but Girl on the Train is attempting to be the exact same book. So people who had read Gone Girl and you can't really reread a mystery with the same satisfaction were right. super excited to relive that experience. And they couldn't. No. They should have read uh, dark places instead. Um, going cool. back to your question, Julia, though, I've, I've definitely had books that were difficult that I was frustrated by, and mm. then I would try again and mm-hmm. gain a lot from it. Like Faulkner was that way. For yeah, me. for sure. When I first sure. read Faulkner, when I first tried to read Sound and the Fury, and granted, I was younger and a more inexperienced reader, but it was it was so hard and like weird, and I just didn't know. A, you know how to wrap my head around that reading experience um and then rereading the sound and the fury when i was older it was like oh this book is so good and 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 then, you know finnegan's wake on when we did that like that was one of those i had tried before and it was just like this is not and you know i did get something out of the experience i don't know if it was worth all that time and energy but um i, it, I got i'm glad i finished it i got into a fight with um wendy's cousin emily um who uh claimed to hate Joan Didion and I was like you can't you can't and she's a writer I'm like you can't call yourself a writer and hate Joan Didion and so then it turned out she'd read like two essays um but at any rate I I then picked up Slouching Towards Bethlehem and I had to write this long essay um for um for a newspaper and I was having trouble getting into it and I just picked up Slouching Towards Bethlehem and started reading it again and uh, that's another example of I read Slash and Truth Bethlehem for the first time when I was like, you know, 25 or something. And you read it now, and not only is it just the same magnificent genius that it always was, it takes on new meaning as years go by because mm-hmm. history keeps repeating itself. Like, she talks about 1967 in Slash and Truth Bethlehem in, the, in the, the, the title essay. And she speaks of, you know, the center cannot hold. You know, the world was in fraught with mortgage crises and violence. She could be talking about... 2016 um so that's an example though of a book that i came back to recently and had an even more profound effect on me and then you realize that joan Deeding was like you know 24 or whatever when she wrote it and you want to kill her no she was older than that she was 25 at that point she's 26 it's about her being in her 20s i have no idea how old she is how old she is now she's old she's (laughs) listen I was afraid that 2016 was going to take Joan Didion, but oh my God. thank God. Thank God it didn't. Okay, so something uh, Ryder said I think leads really well into another one of these questions. Um, and this is very New Year's resolution-y too, so I'm excited about it. Uh, this one is from, let me get the name right, Caitlin. Hi, Caitlin. Uh, and she said, as the, as the year closes, I'm looking at my Goodreads summary of the year. 
do you all like these reading challenges that these that they do? I set a goal for 35 books. And then she kind of goes on about it. So do you guys ever give yourself a resolution or a challenge? And I mean, not just number, but it is also becoming popular to say like, okay, I'm only going to read books by non-white authors for the year or for a couple months. Um, or, you know, Ryder, in your case, like I'm going to read Finnegan's Wake yeah. with this team. Um, so are there other book, book-related resolutions or challenges that you guys have ever done? No, but no. I really want to i like i like that idea um especially you know now that reading has become so sparse sparse in my life like reading time is just i'm not finding i'm not finding it i need to make it so i like that idea i mean finnegan's wake was the only time that i was like let's do this team but outside of like a book club um but yeah i guess it was the year i read more poetry because the poet laureate told me i had to and then sent me a book list (laughs) <laughs> that. that was a good year. Yeah. It was very sad. <laughs> I forgot about that year. What about you, Julia? Um, I'm not good with the follow through, but I love resolutions. So <laughs> <laughs> New Year's has very oddly become like my favorite holiday. Uh, I just absolutely love the idea of like, yeah, I'm going to do all these things and set all these goals. And even if I miss half of them, I still enjoy the process. So I've made resolutions like I'm going to try to read 50 books or I mean, numbers don't work. That doesn't work at all. Um, but I would like to do things that are genre related or pushing to new kinds of authors. Um, if I were to do a resolution right now, I'm like turning around and look at my bookshelf. Um, I think maybe this year I'll try to read the, all the biographies I have. I have like 10 biographies sitting around and biographies it's like you see them you're like i love this person you read the first 10 pages and then you're like oh damn this is really long so (laughs) (laughs) how long did this person live uh yeah getting through all the biographies would be a good one another one i thought of is trying to read through like a book from each continent oh i did do that i did that when i was like 22 i tried to read um I tried to read around the world. I tried to read, like, each new book I read had to be from a different country in translation. Did it work? I didn't, no, I didn't read, like, 180 books, but I did read, <laughs> I read a lot well, of... Well, if you did continent, then it would only be, right, what, seven. seven. Sure. So. I read um, a lot of Asian literature during that time. I read um, Turkish literature. I read African literature. I did do that one. Totally forgot about it. I think I might want to read um, or try to read more graphic novels this year. I bought a bunch last year that I didn't get a chance to read because I got, after you guys got me into them, I started buying more and more. And whenever I'd go into uh, Skylight Books in Los Angeles, they have a great store. Uh, so they have an annex store that's just filled with graphic novels. They have this huge, great big section and a super knowledgeable staff. And so whenever I go into Skylight for whatever reason, I go in there and I say, hey, what's a, you know, what's a good new graphic novel? And it's always the same dude who's like, oh, let me tell you. And then he pulls this thing off the shelf, and then I buy it. And then I sit, set it on my desk, and I'm like, I'm going to read this very soon. And then it's like January of 2017. There's such quick reads. That's Graphic novels is a good, yeah, good and, easy resolution. And I always enjoy reading them, and I, I feel like um, it allows me to uh, also experience art. You know, Like, I don't mm-hmm. get to experience enough art, I don't feel like. Um, so that may, maybe 2017 will be the year... After I finish this book that is due in uh, 18 days, will be the year that I spend reading graphic novels. 
Uh, our producer, Tucker, I know, has a book resolution that is really cool. I don't know how he's doing. He can jump in and report on it. But he wants to read a biography of each U.S. president in order. Oh, yeah. So Yeah, I asked him about it last time he was here. He's been doing it for a while. I think he's only up to, like, Hamilton. I mean, uh, Adams. Uh, yeah, only, like, two, two in. Uh, I am just on Adams now. And uh, the, the first Adams, not his son. So, yes. The, the Washington biography was like a thousand pages long, so you need a little bit of a break uh, in, in between them or else y- you only read a handful of books each year. Anyways, I actually just picked up uh, John Adams off my off my floor to start reading last night, and that was before I actually heard that you guys were going to call me out on uh, my previous resolution to, to do this. Um, I did find that the the kind of the greater the president, the longer the book. So uh, Washington's a really long book. Um, for Lincoln, I'll probably do Team Arrivals, which is what the, the, the movie Lincoln was based on. So I'm hoping to kind of hammer through some of these books once I get to like James Buchanan and those, because their biographies are only 200 pages long. Uh, Buchanan's is also titled The Worst President. So I'm looking at a range between 200 pages and probably over a thousand. But since we are talking about John Adams, I will just share real quick, uh, as I've been following and covering the inauguration and stuff, two quick kind of fun random facts. Uh, Louisa Adams, the daughter-in-law of John Adams, was the the first foreign-born first lady. And the second foreign-born first lady is now Melania Trump. So we've got a... a couple hundred years in between uh, this type of uh, first lady, those who were born outside the United States. Um, and then also I found out that uh, only two presidents have been sworn in uh, four times into office. The first was FDR because he was elected four times. And then Obama was also in, uh, sworn into office four times. Uh, the first time because Chief Justice John Roberts kind of messed up the oath of office publicly, so he had to go back in and do it a few days later just to make sure things were legal and good and the conspiracy theorists didn't really have anything to necessarily go off of saying that he was a, a legitimate president or not, uh, but they found other reasons to go after his legitimacy. So then the the second inauguration, he was sworn in on a Sunday, which was January 20th. That was a, a private swearing-in ceremony. He had to do it at that time because of the Constitution. And then the following day was the, the public inauguration uh, where people were able to attend. So, yeah, uh, FDR and Obama are the only two presidents to have been administered the oath of office four times. Anyways, I'll let them continue to make fun of me. And I like the idea that I'm actually four four books into this. So um, maybe by the time I die, I'll be up to um, one of the Roosevelt's. Who's the, the, he's not the second far. president? Like, yes, I, I forget who he said, but it was only like maybe at the most like four presidents. And it was like, oh. I mean, you get tricked because Washington is so amazing. Yeah, and that's what he said. Because I asked him, I was like, well, what's been your favorite so far? And he was like, Washington. Yeah, so. well, that book Washington, is supposed yeah. to be amazing. No. Washington had a pretty fucking amazing life. I mean, if you just look at Washington's relationship with Benedict Arnold, which I read a great book about. He really complex, strange life that George Washington led. Yeah, I I really want to read a Washington biography. The 
the guy who wrote the Hamilton biography did Washington first. Well, right now is a great time to be reading about presidents. Yeah. It sure is. You know, we need to know the ins and outs of I, I have to impeaching. I would like to know if any other president legality. previously was deeply into, um, well, yeah, showers. being pissed on by Russian hookers. Is basically what I was going to uh, say. Definitely Madison. Madison okay. was deep into the piss game. <laughs> Ron Chernow <laughs> is who wrote <laughs> the Hamilton and Washington biographies, and I'd yeah, like to be listening and, to that audiobook in here. And then James Madison turned and said, "Please, Sonia, urinate upon me." <laughs> Well, I think that's a, a really good one, but the, the biographies that I have sitting around that I would like to read are actually of amazing women. So I have a Queen Victoria biography. I have my Cleopatra one I've already talked about length. I have one on like a duchess who was Princess Diana's great-great-grandmother or something. So lots of cool women. That's that's what I have. Okay. All right. Do you that's have a resolution, one. Ryder? No. No, I, I do like the idea of, of, of increasing poetry, though. I feel like that's the part that it's the hardest to get recommendations for poetry because people just don't read it. And, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not in Todd's situation where I'm surrounded by poets on a regular basis enough to ask, like, what are you reading? Um, so I just kind of randomly go to poetry sections and pick out names I don't recognize, flip through. If I like it, I buy it. But that hasn't produced. You know what? It's uh, produced like one or two good you know, poems, not like a good. You might book. like um Every week in the New York Times, um, Matthew Zapruder, my friend Matthew Zapruder, picks oh, yeah. a poem for the New York Times. And it's typically poets who have books out right now. Um, but he runs the poem, and you know, there's a little bio on the author as well. Um, and I found some really good poetry from, um, from his picks. And also just looking at the poetry that Wave Books publishes, they publish people from across the spectrum. If you're looking for really good um, current poetry, I think Wave does a, a really nice job. Cool. Great. All right, here's a totally different question. Okay. What are your thoughts on listening to music while you read? Is it distracting, or is it a way to help zone out of the real world and immerse yourself in the story? While you read? While you read, or write, in your case. I, I could go either way. It's like, I, I once I get into a book, I'm usually in it, and it doesn't matter if music is playing or not, but... Sometimes I'll put on music to just make the room feel warmer and more cozy while I read, while I get into a book. But once I'm in it, I'm not listening to music. I need absolute silence uh, in terms of music. Actually, I did so much reading on the subway in New York that there's like two modes, either absolute silence or total noise. Mm -hmm. Right. Anything in between is too distracting. I, uh, Todd? I, pre I prefer to read in silence. Um, because if I hear the TV going or music, then my mind will start to wander and I'll be like, oh, I fucking hate that song. Or, oh, you know, what are the Property Brothers doing now? Um, but when I'm writing, I need to have music, not because I, to get me into the mood or anything, but as sort of like a, a focusing tool of, of white noise. Um, hmm. Without it, I'm aware of like my body <laughs> and I'm aware of like, the dog in the refrigerator. Never good. Um, and, you know, whatever else is going on. But if I have music on, so like my office in my house um, doesn't have a door. So it's, you know, I can hear the entire house coming in and out of out of my office. Um, but if I have music on, like, I, I don't know if, like, Wendy could be slaughtering, you know, f fucking goats in the kitchen and, and, you know, doing witchcraft. And I'd be like, 
Oh, hold on. I'm finishing chapter two. I don't hear you. Um, mm. But what I'm, re you know, reading for me, like I, that the focus on the words um, is really important, except if I'm on a plane. If I'm on a plane, I have to have music while I'm reading. Otherwise, all I'll hear is the fucking guy sneezing behind me, sniffing and coughing and scratching and touching and talking. Ordering, wow. ordering fucking tomato juice. Why do people drink tomato juice on fucking planes? You don't drink tomato juice anywhere else. You get get a fucking water like the rest of the normal people. Just, I'm just saying. Got a lot of anger. anger. Alternatively, I've noticed Ryder is very <laughs> subdued today. <laughs> <laughs> It's raining in LA. I'm in a. I'm in a like you know. I've got a scarf on. I'm wearing a hat. I believe you're drinking tea. I'm still drinking out of a. I'm drinking tea <laughs> out of a uh, a Christmas let it snow. Cup. Oh my Aww. goodness! Which I forgot to put away when I put away all our Christmas decorations. Okay, so subdued rider. Since you said that we would answer them if we got them, we did get a girl a boy meets world question, but I think it's a really good question. Uh, this is from Kelly. Um, my question is for Ryder. I've been curious if when you played Sean on Boy Meets World, did your interest in literature and writing influence uh, the writing of the character? Or did they plan that and that influenced your interest in <laughs> literature? Well, no, it was all my interest just driving it. Um, the writers, what happened is I had a, a, a really great, we had really great two, stu two studio teachers on the show um, and when I was 15, I took a, a college course over the summer while we were off from the show, and I wrote my final paper on Machiavelli, and my teacher decided it was like the greatest paper ever written, and he not only, he, 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 he shared it with the entire oh, writing God. staff, basically. And that <laughs> sort of, all the writers, the writing staff was like, oh, writers, you know, obviously interested in more than just, um, uh, acting and, and just movies and TV and stuff and he has these other and so they started talking to me about like you know books and, and what I was reading and what I was listening to music wise and, and all of that started to filter down into the character I think you know like every good TV show is usually some there's some give and take between the writers and the actors and, and they start writing towards you know what the actors tendencies are especially a teenage show like if they're smart um, you know like I know on Girl Meets World uh, I think there was there was just the fact that you know you had Corey Fulkelmanis was playing the character of Farkel, which is like written as this very nerdy, small, you know, he was like the geek character, and of course Corey grew like six inches between seasons one and two, and like became this like really good-looking tall guy, and I think this is the writer suddenly were like, oh, we can't just keep writing this nerdy, you know. Uh, character for this guy we have to adapt and and you can see that in the second season of girl meets world they started changing his character and, and making the fact that he was changing part of the show and um they did that with me too so yeah the whole and then they found out i wrote poetry and that was when they decided to write a whole episode about sean being a secret <laughs> poet uh, so yeah. deep <laughs> just yeah, so deep, deep and thoughtful and not wanting to share poems with the world but uh, they were so yeah no it, they, they they were inspired by me and um, the, the creator of the show, Michael Jacobs, is a big literary, literature buff. Like, he's a big, you know, reader himself. And so we used to talk books all the time. And he knew I was into it. So he wrote it into the character. That's, cool. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah. I, that's a very good uh, bone to throw your fans. That's After so interesting. After you broke them so um, mercilessly last episode. No. They, 
<laughs> they weren't broken. They were just, you were they, answering I, lingering I questions. Four o'clock in the morning when I was responding as writer on Literary Disco, people seemed raw. Mm. <laughs> was that before or after our annual mall trip? <laughs> that was after our mall trip. <laughs> <laughs> It is always like at two in the morning. You just know Todd is like taking a break from writing. He's like, I'm just gonna, I'm just God, gonna create a whole get mad. People get fucking mad. They actually think we're at a mall. Well, yeah, when you tell them we're landing in their city and they should come pick us up at the airport. That's on understandably. You. If people, if people don't know about Uber and feel like we need to get a ride from the airport, that's that's their parents' fault for not raising them right. Okay, so since, Todd, you are some people's pet peeves, this is yes. a question about pet peeves. Okay. This is from Jesse. <laughs> nice segue. <laughs> I've read do the you reviews. Any, <laughs> I do know. Any of you, <laughs> do any of you have a pet book pet peeve, like something that always makes you scream internally or externally when you read it? For me, it's extended dream sequences. Oh, fuck dream sequences. Uh, I have oh, a million. I hate dream sequences. God, dream sequences in TV shows are really bad, too. Like, I could handle them in Sopranos, you know, because they were really kind of funny and surreal. But now, when I watch these TV shows that do these dream sequences to just, like, make something exciting and make you go, what's happening? And then it's like, oh, it was all a dream. Who, Fuck who's that. Who's even that doing that anymore? I oh, there's like a lot of everybody, them. Everybody. There's a lot of them. Everybody. I feel like I, it's, it's like the go-to, like, this is supposed to be a weird sequence or make you feel a little off and you don't know why. And it just, you, you always call it. You're always like, this can't really be happening. And it's just a way to increase dramatic stakes in, this, in an episode where there isn't enough stakes. Like, it's lazy writing. Anyway, uh, in books, Wow. What is my biggest pet Dream sequences in books is enough for me. I mean, uh, so invariably, because I, obviously I teach creative writing, I see a lot of beginning writing. So dream sequences are the thing that I, like immediately I'm like this. You're, you're asking a reader to both believe in the fictional world that you've created, believe in the fictional world's characters who have uh, interior motivations and all that stuff. And then we also have to believe in the fictional character living in a fictional world's fictional dreams. Mm. It's, it's like it's, it's a bridge mm. too far. Yeah. Um, th- that makes me crazy, but dialogue tags that aren't said make me nuts. He expressed lucidly. He retorted aggressively. <laughs> like dialogue tags that also have a an, an adverb, adverb oh, it's attached the to them. Writing. Oh my God. Yeah. It makes me want to kill myself. And that's and what, I, it's such a beginner writer mistake, like, you know, because you just, you, you, it's the first time that you're writing something out that you're not reading, and you sit there and you go, well, I can't just say he said. It's got to be right. more expressive than that. And the truth is, no, it just needs to be mm. he or she said. If you add right. anything more to it, it's just going to take more time for the reader, to, and it's just going to call more attention to itself and slow the reading experience down. Like, we don't need it. Well, and it's, that, yeah. it takes away part of the joy of literature which is interpreting and connecting yeah empathizing yourself yeah because the dialogue should be the emotion like if you can't understand a character through the things that they say saying he expressed uh, aggressively is not going to make us understand the character any better it's just going to um you know it's just going to tell the reader what to feel um, so that that makes me crazy, but you don't see that. I mean, you see it some in like some genre fiction, and I don't know why you see it more often in genre fiction than you do in um, in literary fiction. Like, like why is it? 
more acceptable in a romance novel. Because like, remember that Christmas romance we that read? That was not good. How could we ever forget? We were misled. That Christmas romance, um, yeah, we were totally misled. That Christmas romance was filled with um, those horrible dialogue tags. Uh, that's not a good uh, example. Right. Listeners, we still need you to send us a really, really good romance novel. And I mean, like, seriously good. Yeah. Yeah. Like, be forewarned, if you send it and you're not sure if it's good, we might make fun of it and you. So, <laughs> think about Mostly it. Mostly you. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> you know what's another pet peeve of bad writing is uh, people smiling at each other a lot. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but you know what, dude? And it's like <laughs> that's that's like, like I have to go in and, and cut all of that shit from yes. my books. But you know what I'm talking oh, about? Oh, no. right? It's like oh, no. <laughs> clearly the per- the writer needed a beat to happen between two characters, but you just like get stuck on people smiling yeah. at each other, and it's like stop. No one like turns to somebody and smiles. Like that just doesn't happen in life. Like you, if you do that, it's because you're being you know fake or, I don't yeah. know. so it just immediately takes away the reality of the situation like people don't like take a beat to turn and smile at each other except in bad bad fiction yeah there's a lot of times when i'm when i'm critiquing my students work and i'll see like 11 smiles in a row i'm like these people look like lunatics like imagine these people <laughs> sitting inside of a starbucks having this conversation just constantly smiling at each other <laughs> Oh my god, that would be, we should do like a drunk history of somebody's bad fiction. We should! Like, take like the worst short stories and then shoot a scene, like interpreting. Let's do it! Uh, so a pet peeve of mine, which is not on the writing level, it's on the plot level, and I'm sure I've mentioned this before because I absolutely hate it, and I hate it in movies and plays as well, uh, when towards the end you realize that the writer is writing this book. Oh, I hate that. I, I hate, hate it that. more than anything. Wait, what do you mean? It's like, like what they did to the, the Great the Gatsby. With it. They did that to the Great Gatsby in the movie. Yeah. Wait, you mean so the, so it's like revealing that the the narrator the the writer or the, the main character people? rather, the main character is a writer or an artist of some kind and towards the end they'll be like and we have to make you have to tell your story or whatever, and then you realize that they're writing this very story yeah. that you you've read. <laughs> it happens a lot, and often often movies will do it to books, which pisses me off to no end. Including Little Women, which is a movie I love, but they <laughs> they do that too. They just make this humongous point that uh, Joe slash Winona Ryder's writing Little Women because she's the writer. She's the intellectual they, one. They did that with the adaptation of Great Gatsby with Leonardo DiCaprio two years ago where they made Mick Carraway a writer who was writing the novel or writing the book of his yeah. experiences. Hate I, it. it. It made Don't me want to burn down the fucking Regal Theater. I'm like, give me a fucking match. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, yeah, that's my pet peeve, and I'm sorry if any of you are currently writing something where that happens, but you should take it out, because I feel like you don't have to be a writer to be deep. I think that's what that move is. It's like, and this person's so deep, they're a writer, like me. It feels like extreme Mary suing or the writer really coming through, like praising themselves for being an amazing writer. Right. Don't like it. All right, last question. Last question. Okay, this one's really, really, really open-ended. Okay. Which is why it's a good last question. Is there a particular book that changed your life? So, yeah, there's a lot. What, what about you? You go first, Julia. I would say 
the book that changed my life, the book that turned me into a writer was Lord of the Flies mm, in wow. sophomore year of high school because I remember my teacher I mean Lord of the Flies is really really heavy-handed but it's such a great way to show students how metaphor works I mean I, I'm not sure there's a substitute of a book that is so heavy-handed and it's like Jesus imagery so having this teacher walk us through all the layers of Lord of the Flies and how it reflects like Jesus's ascension and betrayal and all this stuff it totally blew my mind um, and I haven't reread it since that time but I actually remember the moment sitting in the classroom being like whoa so I would say that was a life-changing moment um, because mm. it made me want to write wow. things that weren't just telling stories but that were about things right mm. so that's one but I mean I have a million too I feel like books change me all the time yeah I, I know I've talked on the show about a couple books already that changed my life. Like, in our first episode, I talked about Of Mice and Men. Um, and I, I've talked about reading um, Richard Ford when I was in college. But the I, I, the book that I've gone to a lot over and over again over the years, um, when I think about a book that changed the way I view both writing fiction and nonfiction, but also as a reader, is uh, The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. Um because it, I re actually I read it on my honeymoon. My poor wife, you know. Oh, let's let's go to the beach. Hold on, I'm I need to kill a man in, in the rice fields of Vietnam first. <laughs> um, but there's that great story um, in the things they carried, uh, how to tell a true war story, that questions what truth is in fiction and what truth is in nonfiction. And makes you wonder if anything you've read is true and whether or not it matters if it's true or not. And that's a lesson that as a, as a professor also that I end up teaching over and over and over again about what the nature is of truth in fiction, what the nature is of truth in nonfiction. And so in that way, that book, uh, and not just that short story, though that short story had a pretty profound effect on me too, that entire book, I think, has altered the way I write, it's altered the way I read, and it's altered the way I teach. Mm. Wow. Mm. And it's a good book. You read it on your, on your honeymoon when you're 27. It's a great book. Um, I don't have a, an easy answer. I feel like we, the, so much of this show is talking about what books have changed our lives. So I feel like I've already discussed a right. lot of the things. Yeah. Um, but I'm trying to separate because so often books have changed me as an artist or me as a writer but i'm trying to think right. like well what has actually affected my life like the way i live my life where i finished it because you know yeah i think yeah. in high school and, and in college i would always read these books that influence the way i, I would write and, and think about uh, the art form but if i'm if i'm just thinking about like effect on my day-to-day -day living or my behavior um it's still pretty hard to to um discount how huge of an effect reading Kerouac had on me when I was 16, you know, or maybe mm. it was even earlier, 15 or 16. But, like, the desire to travel America and, like, actually, I, you know, I, I think it came out of the one-two punch of Steinbeck and Kerouac. Um, by the time I was 16, I was already planning my first road trip across the United States. And, you know, I've taken multiple, multiple road trips. And I think that, like... 
the 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 idea that like you need to get out there and meet people and have conversations and, and that with people from all walks of life like that's that's something I really believe in and like in terms of how I travel I don't like to travel by like going somewhere and just staying in your hotel room or just going to the tourist attractions I like to travel by like walking as much as possible and being on the ground and like you know ending up in some little restaurant and having a conversation with the person behind the counter like those are always the best travel experiences and I think the the main inspiration for me to do that was reading the Steinbeck's Travels with Charlie and Cannery Row mm-hmm. uh, when I was younger I think I was like 13 when I read those books and then when I was around driving age reading Kerouac um, you know obviously starting with On the Road which is not the best book but then moving on from that into his other books um, that really inspired me to, to to approach this sort of adventurous you know, uh, explore the world, see as much of it as you can, meet as many different types of people. Like that's definitely, and I'm so happy about it. You know, that's probably had more yeah. of a lingering effect than any of the actual literature has on me. In terms of literature, Ginsburg, like from that genera- from that era, Ginsburg had much more of an effect on me writing-wise and vocabulary-wise. Um, but, but as far as lifestyle-wise, yeah, it's still Kerouac. So I just realized that that's such a good answer writer Mm -hmm. and like I had an experience as a young girl that I think is very very typical for women my age that I realize you guys would not connect with so please tell me there's a horse involved is there a horse involved um no but could be uh so when I I was born in 1983 and in the 80s all of the popular literature for girls who were like 8 to 10 was it was all about girls who were like badass and brave mm-hmm. all of it literally all of it ramona mm. anna green gables right. um matilda well, right except for sweet valley High. no that was for older a little bit older so oh, okay I see there was saying. this like mm-hmm. very exact moment in american culture where all of these cool books from the 60s and 70s kind of made it through to this 80s moment and mm. I mean, I don't even think it, like, slightly affected my personality. I, I, I cannot overstate how much I read at the time. I think it literally created my personality. Because every single book was about being brave and about being, like, kind of weird and crazy. And I was just, like, a sponge. So mm-hmm. all of these girls are, are one girl. You know, they're all very, very similar. Um, and that was life-making even more than life-changing so I I felt that way too and then another thing you made me think of Ryder is um a couple of years ago when I was like oh shoot I guess I live in Connecticut now like (laughs) I don't live in New York (laughs) like I'm not gonna be famous what is my life I live in this small city you know what does that mean Mm -hmm. you know is it okay basically to have a smaller life than you imagined. And at that time, I read Stoner, which I know you guys have both Mm -hmm. loved, by John Williams, which is an incredible book, period. But it also makes the case for a small and almost completely private life having so much worth and so much beauty in itself. So that was very affirming for me at the time as well. So Mm -hmm. if you feel like, oh, I'm not doing anything or... You know, I'm never going to achieve X, Y, Z. I would really recommend this book because... Yeah, that's a great one. It really is beautiful. But And, you know, I think what Ryder said about um, 
the the Kerouac and all that stuff too. I mean, it's all it's it's all part of a piece, right? Like when when you read a certain book at a certain time, and it feeds into not just who you want to be, but who you could be. Like that, there's a possibility for you to live a life other than the one that you're living. That's I, I that's what good books do, right? Like they they show you, oh, here's here's another thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is why it's so important, I think, to read when you're younger. You know, because because mm-hmm. you are at that moment between the ages of, I guess, whatever, 10 and 25, like where you could reinvent yourself at a moment's notice. And and having that little glimpse, that empathy for somebody who's living a completely different life could could inspire yeah. you to yeah. change everything. Well, what a That's great so note yeah. to end on. Read, kids. Well, read. I, I think I think, Tucker, you need to play us out with a little Hey Jack Kerouac from 10,000 Maniacs. <laughs> Thanks for your great questions, guys. We will see you next time. Hey, Jack Kerouac, I think of your mother and the teaching.